0: Good morning. For those of you who are new here, I'm Chris Dirksen, one of the associate pastors. And uh, we're right in the, uh, in the heart of a series on the sovereignty of God. And just so you know, uh, next week we'll take a little break from the sovereignty of God. Uh, Pastor is going to be speaking. It's Mother's Day. And, uh, but, uh, and then we'll carry on after that. Uh, but we're right in the, in the heart of it. And if you haven't been here uh, for the first two weeks, uh, this is part three here today, uh, then just a reminder again, if you're new here, a visitor or whatever, each of these messages is building on the others and uh, if you want to go back and catch up on a lot of this stuff, I'm assuming today, uh, we, it's all free on, online on our website, www.myselfand.com, and I would recommend that you do that. Um, but we're talking about the sovereignty of God, the fact that God is a king, and He is right now ruling over, He is king over the entire universe. And so we've been working our way through, in the first two weeks, we've been working our way through uh, seven things. And of course, there's more than seven things that God is in control of. But we've been, looking, uh, we've been working our way through seven important things in Scripture that God is actively in control of and doing right now in the world all around us. And, uh, and, uh, and one of the things we're learning as we're looking at what the Scripture says about what God is in charge of and what He's doing in the world all around us is that uh, God is far more uh, in control of the world around us than most of us ever thought before. Isn't that true? And he's far more actively involved in our personal lives. We're going to find out now in the next couple of weeks, we're going to find out that he's far more interested in your personal life than you ever thought before. And he's far more actively involved, not just in the world around you, but he's far more actively involved in your life than you ever thought before. So anyway, yeah, so we're working our way through seven, seven things the Bible says God is in charge of and controlling right now. And uh, this is essential stuff, I just, uh, just a reminder again, as I was uh, getting ready for this week, uh, why this is so important to study. I mean, again, I, I'm, I, we're doing a whole series now on the sovereignty. And in the past, we've done, you know, one message here, one message there. Um, but when you begin to understand the sovereignty of God, when you get a revelation of how in charge of things He is, uh, the first thing that begins to happen is your heart begins to be changed. Your heart is confronted. When your heart is confronted with the awesomeness of His sovereignty, that everything we have and everything we are is from Him and that He's in control of these things, the first thing that happens to your heart is you, you begin to get some Humility. And the second thing that begins to happen is you just gaze on the awesomeness of God's sovereignty as the fear of the Lord begins to grow up. Um, but another thing, as I was thinking this week, is uh, this is an essential topic to, to study and really pick it apart and see what is God in control of, what is God in charge of, because it will help us to pray more accurately. Because we'll, we'll know, we'll know from Scripture, these are the things God is doing, and we'll know who it is that we're praying to. And, uh, and then, a last reason why I just think this is so essential to study this topic and, and to really understand what the Bible says is that as we get a revelation of God's sovereignty, we begin to find out that we can trust this God. Things are not out of His control. He's far more powerful, He's far more in charge than we ever thought before. And when you begin to get a revelation of that, your heart begins to come to rest. I can lean on this God, I can trust Him in my circumstances and in my life. And so, that's a huge thing. And so, so far in this series, we've only gotten through three of the things. And if you could just put those up there, uh, Jared. Uh, So far, out of the seven things, the things we've looked at so far, the fact that uh, God actively restrains evil right now. I mean, we see evil happening in the world all around us. Uh, What we don't realize is that thanks to God being in charge, there is tons and tons and tons more evil that doesn't happen because he stops it. He allows a little bit of evil because of his mercy. He's giving people more time to repent. But he's actively holding evil back as, as I speak and every moment. Another thing we've looked at is the fact that he, he actively decides. He decides who the leaders will be in our world. And he raises people up and brings others down. So he's at, he's at work in that. And then last week we spent our whole time uh, talking about the fact that God controls all of the weather around the world is controlled by God. This is the sovereignty of God. He's actually uh, in charge. And uh, today what we're going to do in the rest of this message is we're going we're to slog through a couple more. We're doing the hard work here of, of laying out the doctrine of sovereignty. I want to show you two more things that God is uh, absolutely in control of and in charge of in the world all around of us. And then at the end of this message, we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to introduce a topic that's going to come up more in the rest of the series, but we're going to start to also talk about something that we have to talk about in, when we're talking about the sovereignty of God, and that is uh, where does the sovereignty of God and human responsibility meet, right? That's an important question. Because when you start to see what the Bible says about how in charge of things God is. Sometimes people get a little overboard on the sovereignty thing, and then they think, well, I can just kick back now. I don't have to do anything. There's no human responsibility. I'll just watch God do all the things He's going to do. And clearly that isn't true in Scripture either. And so we're going to begin to look at this question biblically of where does the sovereignty of God and where does my responsibility as a human being, where do these things meet, all right? And so that's what we're going to look at today. Bow your heads and me, close your eyes, and then uh, we'll get into this. Heavenly Father, I just want to give you all the glory and honor and praise today. You are, you are worthy, and this message series is about you. This message series is not about us. This is about, uh, this is about us discovering who you are and then fitting ourselves into that picture. And I just pray, Father, that as we go through this message today, Lord Jesus, I want you to have all the glory. I want people to see how awesome you are, and I want people to see how good you are from Scripture. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would enable me to do that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So last week I, I talked a bit about the weather and, and I just wanted to say something about that. Um, I know that when I first introduced that last week and I told you that God controls all the weather on the earth, uh, some of you and some of you who weren't here last week, you're going, What? Um, and I know that some of you, uh, many of you last week will have gone, when I first made that statement, and then I showed you a bunch of scriptures and we talked about that, but I know that a, a bunch of you, uh, at the beginning, you will have recoiled. When I said God controls all the weather uh, on the earth, you'll, you will have recoiled. No, that can't be true. And the reason I know that many of you will have recoiled is because it's the same reaction uh, I've had. As I've looked at this subject over the years, when you first begin to be confronted with what the Bible says, our Western mindset it's very much against that. Our Western mindset thinks it is weird to see God at work in a world all around us. We think of it as weird. Our Western mindset is all into naturalism. We think that God created the world. So as Christians, we believe that. Of course, God was necessary to create the world. But we don't think that God, God's power and intervention is necessary to keep the world going. And we have this picture, and I've come back to it again and again, we have this picture of God made this, you know, the earth is kind of like an alarm clock of the universe, he wound it up, and now the, the laws of science take over. And so now, when we look at the universe, you know, uh, why, if I drop this bottle, and uh, I'm glad it didn't explode there, but if I drop this bottle, it falls, and why does it fall? Well, gravity, Right? And why does it rain? Well, pressure systems and ocean currents and all sorts of stuff. We've got a naturalistic explanation for everything that happens in the world around us. And, uh, and so it's weird. The moment someone actually opens up a bunch of passages and shows you that the Bible actually says that God is actively involved in the world around us, making things happen, that's very weird to us because we have a natural explanation for everything that happens. Now, of course, again, like I said last week, I'm not denying that there's a law of gravity. Certainly, you know, I drop it, it falls uh, we can study it. There certainly is a force called gravity. I'm not denying that there's gravity. I'm not denying, uh, you know, the laws of science and all that sort of stuff. But the question that we never ask is why does gravity keep working? We just we just satisfy ourselves with natural explanations. And so we, we, we are blinded to the work of God all around us because we, we're satisfied with the natural explanation. And so, okay, well, why did the bottle fall? Well, gravity, we don't ask any further questions. We don't ask the question, why does gravity keep working? Why does it keep working? Why does the, why does you know, do Kepler's laws of planetary motion, why do they keep working? Why does the earth not just spin off into space somewhere? Why does the moon not just crash into the earth and kill us all? Why? Why? And we don't ask that question because we are so steeped in naturalism that we have come to believe that the laws of physics themselves are eternal. They are existent apart from God. God doesn't need to intervene in his creation unless he's doing a miracle. And we don't think he's involved all the time, even when when it's not a miracle. Now, of course, some of you might be sitting there, and you might be thinking, well, isn't this all a little bit philosophical anyway? Like, I mean, who cares? Who really cares? I mean, if it's if it's, I mean, if, if it's gravity anyway, who cares if it's God making gravity happen? Let me tell you why it matters. The moment naturalism seeps into your head that you think gravity and the laws of physics and all these things can happen without God's moment-by-moment intervention to make them happen... The moment naturalism seeps into your head that you think God made the universe and wound it up and let it go and now he wa- he's watching it, the moment that seeps into your head and it has seeped into all of our heads here in the West, the, next, the very next moment something will happen in your heart and that is you will begin to think and feel like God is distant and remote. It's automatic and it's epidemic in Christianity right now. It's epidemic in Christianity. How many of us, how much of our lives feel like God is distant? We feel like he's off in heaven somewhere and uh, he he doesn't hear our prayers. He doesn't care about our lives. That's how we feel even if we don't say it. That's how many of us in the West feel. He's distant. Or even if we don't think uh, he's just off in heaven, we think he's off in China somewhere with a persecuted church. But he's not here involved in my life. We feel like he's distant and remote. And those two things are absolutely correlated. Naturalism and the feeling that God is remote are completely tied together because that's what naturalism does. Naturalism says, okay, sure, God was necessary to get the whole thing going, but now he steps back and the thing goes on its own and we can explain everything that happens around us without God. Therefore, we see no proof that God's actually home. If I come home... At the end of a day of work and I don't see Ladon at home. If I, you know, if I go home today after church and I don't see Ladon at home or on Tuesday after work if I go home and I don't see Ladon at home, then I'm going to feel like she's not there, right? I'm going to act as if she's not there, okay? I'm going to have to, you know, I'm not going to get a hug and a kiss unless I hug and kiss myself, okay? That's not a pretty sight. I'm going to have to put, uh, you know, supper together for myself and that's not going to be a pretty sight either, Okay? <laughs> And it's going to be quiet in the house because I won't have anyone to talk to. If I don't see her at home, if there's no evidence that she's at home, then I'm going to feel and act and live like she's not there. She's off somewhere else doing who knows what, okay? So she's just not home. Well, the naturalism has done the exact same thing to us about God. Naturalism explains everything we see around us and says God's not in that. And so we don't see that God is at home and we spend our whole Christian lives hugging ourselves, looking for love, trying to do things without going to him, thinking he doesn't care because we don't see him being home. And what I'm showing you from Scripture is, biblically, that's not true. He is actively, intimately involved in the world all around us. And yes, there is science and there's high-pressure systems, low-pressure systems, but he is actively manipulating those things for his purposes all the time, and so we can see evidence of him at work and the fact that he cares for us in these things. And so, last week we talked about the fact that God is actively controlling the weather all over the earth. I want to go even deeper than that in this first point now, and we'll look at the fourth thing that God actively controls and rules over in the world all around us, and that is, it goes far beyond the weather. The weather is just, you know, one of the fruits He actually, right now, this moment, is holding the universe together and keeping the laws of physics working, okay? Let me show you this. He is actively, right this moment, the reason when I drop this bottle, there it is, the reason that just worked again is because God today has decided that gravity will work again. And some of you are going, again, this is bizarre teaching. Welcome to the world of the bizarre Many of you just haven't read your Bibles, and you think anything non-Western must be weird. So let me show you non-Western, but true. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3. I'm going to show you three passages here. Long ago, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He, Jesus, obviously, right? is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Now, the Greek word there, uh, translated upholds there, literally means upholds, okay? Just so you know, if you're wondering. It's the Greek word pharaoh. I'm saying it totally wrong, I'm sure, but it's the Greek word pharaoh, and it's in the present act of tense. What that means is, uh, this is not saying that, you know, Jesus upheld the universe once in the past, or once every month he upholds the universe, because it starts to sag a bit or something, or once in the future he's going to uphold the universe. It's not saying that. What it's saying here is that moment by moment, present, active, all the time, Jesus is literally And the word upholds and other meanings for it mean to keep from falling. He's literally keeping the universe from falling apart right now, moment by moment. there's, There's no idea in Scripture of Jesus created the earth, wound it up, let it go, and now he can step back and just do whatever he wants. The picture in Scripture is he created the thing, and just as much as his power was needed to create it, is his power is continued to need to hold the thing up. And so moment by moment, he is upholding, he is right now keeping the universe from falling apart. And if he stopped, if he just got bored of it, as I talked about last week, if he just got bored of it, there's no more gravity. There's no more Kepler's laws of planetary motion or any of that sort of thing. The whole universe and matter itself falls apart. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, it's interesting to me there... That he Again, how he's holding it up. He's holding it up by the word of his power. And this is a, this is a reference, direct reference back to creation. If you go into Genesis chapter 1, in uh, Genesis chapter 1, how did God create the, wor- the world? Well, I mean, every Christian knows he created it by speaking, right? God, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then God said, and there was planets, and, and, and the earth, and the sun, and all sorts of stuff. And God said, and then there was animals, and God created everything by speaking. And the rest of the Bible confirms this, that the the creation, everything was created by the word of God. The thing I want you to notice here is that we we just stop there. We just think God created it with a word, and now here it is. And what we fail to realize is that the same word of God that was necessary to get everything started is the same word of God that is intimately intimately involved in every interaction in the universe today to keep the thing together. It's the same word. He upholds it by The word of God as well. And this is confirmed in Peter, 2 Peter 3, 5 to 7. This is not just some strange uh, teaching in Scripture. This is everywhere, New Testament and Old Testament. This is everywhere. Peter says this, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water, by the word of God. So everything was created by God speaking. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word... Look at that, by the same word. So it was created by a word and then by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment. So Peter says um, the earth was created by God's word and now it is sustained moment by moment. It is upheld by God's word until Jesus comes back. And uh, again, like I said, we have put our faith in the laws of physics. If I ask most of you here today, are you afraid that the earth is going to spin off into space tomorrow and, and will die or that the moon will crash into the earth? And, and none of us, I don't think any of us here would have that fear. And if you do, you need uh, a lot of counseling, okay? So give Tim a call, not me, I'm not good at that. But, um, but, uh, but if I ask you the reason why you're not scared, you would just say, well, that stuff doesn't happen. Well, we can trust in gravity. We can trust in these things. And we've actually come to believe, we've come to actually put our, our trust in, in a subconscious way, in the laws of nature, as if the laws of nature can stand by themselves without God's help. That is a completely Western idea. And Peter says, there's no laws of nature apart from God. How can anything? He existed, everything that is, out of Nothing. How can anything, nothing can self-exist in itself apart from God holding it up? So the same word. we we'll go to Colossians here, one 15 to 15-17. Paul says this, He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created. So there we have it again. Jesus was obviously necessary, we'd all agree, to get things started. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities... All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He was not just responsible for creating everything out of nothing, he is equally responsible for holding it all together. Creation is dependent on God right now, right this very moment. Our existence, and matter, and energy, and the laws of physics are all dependent on his continued word to say, Yes, you get to keep going. Which brings us back again to a verse. I just want to look at for just a minute from last week because I know again that when I first brought it up last week, again, some of you will have a hard time because we're so steeped in naturalism that it's actually hard for us to accept the verse even when we blatantly see that Jesus said it. But here we see in these passages, a consistent teaching throughout the entire New Testament is Jesus is holding the universe together. He's holding up the laws of physics. He's doing all of these things by His Word, and, and, then, and so last week, then we looked at this verse, and now this verse makes even more sense. It just becomes a no-brainer. And Jesus said this about God. He says, for he, that's God, makes his sun rise. And I know when I first brought that verse up last week that actually the sun coming up this morning, even though we can't see it because it's gray out there, but the sun came up again this morning. The fact that it came up is based on a decision God made. And I know for some of us, no! No! The sun came up because, again, the laws of physics. Again, why do the laws of physics work again today? It's not because the laws of physics are something we can put our trust in. It's because we can put our trust in God's faithfulness. And literally, Jesus is by the word of his power in the same way that there would be no creation if he hadn't spoken. If he didn't speak today, the sun doesn't come up. Gravity doesn't keep working. He keeps it going moment by moment. And until you let that... that That worldview completely saturated into your heart, you're going to keep thinking like many Westerners that God is not at home. And you'll get up and you'll think God doesn't care. And you'll think God isn't involved in my life. And God doesn't notice. Until your eyes are open to the biblical revelation that God must notice. He's intimately involved all around you because again, everything keeps going and working. And that's evidence that he's at home. And it's evidence that he's around. And it's evidence that he cares for us. Which brings me to my next point. Because it's one thing to talk about the sovereignty of God on the big level. It's one thing to talk about the sovereignty of God. He controls all the weather. He controls, you know, its gravity, the universe. Uh, he controls all the big things. Uh, what I want to show you now in these next few points or the next, uh, you know, couple of messages is I want to show you that God's sovereign, he doesn't just extend to the big things, the huge things. It extends down into the details of his creation. He actually cares for his creatures. And his sovereignty holds up the universe, yes, but then in addition to that, his sovereignty comes right down, down to the little creatures in his creation and he sovereignly moves in their lives and cares for them. And so my next point here, number number five, I believe it's number five, in the seven things God is ruling over and doing in our world today is God feeds the animals and he makes plants grow and he decides when they will die. So we're not even getting to human beings yet. I'm just, we're getting down to the less important creatures. God's sovereignty Holds up the universe, but then above that, he is such a loving, good God, he actually cares for his creatures. And we're not even talking human beings yet, just animals. God actually personally looks after feeding animals and making plants grow and deciding when they'll die. And let's go back to Jesus again. Jesus was one of the biggest sovereignty teachers in the Bible. Okay, this is a big deal uh, for Jesus. We looked at some stuff Jesus said last week. We look at it again. We're back in the Sermon on the Mount. And here's what Jesus says about creation and God looking after his creatures. Uh, he says this, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. I mean, we just, again, our Western mindset, we've got to set a set glass of glasses when we read the Bible. No wonder many of us are so bored with the Bible. Because we read over a lot of this stuff and we just really, our unbelief just blinds us. We never stop and just think about that. Think about how much God must love you. This God that holds up the universe actually feeds the birds, Jesus says. He looks after them. Are you not of more value than they? And that's his point, right? And which of you, by being anxious, see if if the sovereignty of God really seeped into your heart, anxiety and worry would run. I I mean, I see so often today, and and this is just a little rabbit trail, but uh, I see so often today, there's a lot of preachers out there, and they're preaching whole message series about worry and they're preaching whole messages about anxiety, and how do you get over anxiety, and how do you deal with worry? You want to know what the best way is to deal with anxiety and worry? Get a revelation of God. Stop thinking about your worry, and start thinking about Him. When you realize how in control of everything He is, and the fact that He actually cares even for the birds, then Jesus says, that anxiety is going to run out the door. You can't be worried anymore. He's that sovereign. But again, Naturalism has blinded us. We don't think God's home. He's not going to take care of us. He's not bothered with us. The whole universe is just running on its own right now. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the, the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you or you of little faith? Now again, I know right away, anytime we talk about stuff like this, the the first thing that comes to people's mind is, um, well, Jesus can't be being literal here. Come on, Chris. There's no way he's literally feeding the birds. Okay? Then you can actually just throw out this entire passage. Because Jesus' whole point here is, what's he talking to the disciples about in Matthew 6? And you can go and look it up this week. In Matthew 6, he's telling the disciples, and I just read you some of it. He tells us, you don't have to worry that God's going to feed you or that God's going to take care of you and your clothes and all that sort of stuff. You don't have to worry about that. And the reason you don't have to worry about that is because, look at God takes care of the birds. Now, if Jesus is only being figurative about the birds, if God only figuratively feeds and cares for the birds, then our only hope is that he will figuratively feed us. That's not very comforting. So either Jesus is literally taking care of the birds in which we can literally trust that he's going to take care of us, or we can't. But his whole argument is based on he's actually telling the truth. God feeds the birds so you and I don't have to worry. He'll also feed us. And by the way, again, this is Jesus was a big sovereignty teacher. He talked about this all the time. I'll show you another passage, another message. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is going to talk about the birds again. And I'll just give you a little background here to Matthew ten twenty nine. 29. Um, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus gives a lengthy sermon to his disciples About in their future, they are going to face intense persecution and suffering and martyrdom and all sorts of stuff. It's a real feel good message, okay? Nobody would have bought the book. Uh, Now, in these days, if Jesus would have put his face on the front of the book and written a book like that, they would have been like, whoa, we're not buying that. God only wants to bless us. But anyway, uh, so Jesus preaches a whole message and he says, you're going to suffer, you're going to be persecuted, they're going to kill you, okay? And great detail, okay? At the end of this, I'm imagining, you know, it's a kind of a bit of a downer of a sermon. And they're all like, oh, wow. And then, so Jesus, at the end of the sermon, he says, now now I'm going to encourage you. And so he goes, and he has a little encouraging conclusion. And his encouraging conclusion is not, God's going to save you from pain. It's not that at all. He does not say he's going to keep them from being persecuted. He just went through a whole thing of, this is going to happen to you. And then, but he encourages them. And this is how he encourages them. He says, Um, And by the way, guys, okay, yeah, so they're going to persecute you, they're going to kill you, they're going to hurt you, you're going to suffer lots and lots and lots, it's going to be really bad, but here's what you need to know that's going to make you happy. When the fires are the most intense, when evil people are gathered all around you and they're persecuting you and it looks like your life is in their hands and they can do to you whatever they want, I want you to remember one thing. When the fire is the hottest, I want you to remember that your life is in my hands and you can't be killed until I say it's time. And then to drive his point home, he talks about birds again. And he says this. Are not two sparrows sold for one penny? Okay? And not one of them, not one, will fall to the ground apart from your father. How many of you ever thought about the sovereignty of God at that level? He holds the whole universe up. And then at the same time, he cares about sparrows. I want you to think about all the sparrows. You know, I, I wanted to get my head around this. Uh, passage this week. And so I I did a bit of study on sparrows. I know now far more about sparrows than I should. I think it's driving out some important functions in my brain. But um, but, I mean, not one sparrow can fall to the ground apart from the Father, okay? Um, Sparrows, and the reason, I mean, Jesus knows what He's talking about. He knows the animals. He made them. Uh, Sparrows, uh, the reason He's using sparrows is because they are incredibly common. There are 35 species of sparrows on the earth right now. And they live in every continent on earth except Antarctica. They live in the mountains. They live in the deserts. They live in the jungles. They live in the cold. They live in the winter. They live in the summer. They live everywhere. Chances are right now in your backyards, you've got some sparrows hopping around. Okay? They're everywhere. Okay? And in many places around the world, they gather in flocks of thousands upon thousands. Uh, in Africa and places like that, there are, there are members of the sparrow family. They, it's like a cloud. Okay? They, it just... Thousands of birds and and over there. I try to get a population estimate for sparrows on the earth and all anyone can say is it's billions, okay? It's lots. Um, and So think about that now. Think of swarms of sparrows in Africa and, and America and in your backyard, families of sparrows. There's sparrows everywhere. I want you to think about the sovereignty of God. This is a whole new level of sovereignty. He knows every single one of them moment by moment and not one of them can fall to the ground apart from the Father. A sparrow cannot just fall to the ground and God go, oh, where did Jimmy go? Oh, shoot. <laughs> he knows everyone, every single one. And they can't fall until he says it's time up. Now, um, again, now, of course, uh, you know, thankfully, God is not keeping the sparrows alive forever because then there'd be trillions and trillions of them and they would take over, okay? So I'm not saying, Jesus isn't saying here that a sparrow can never die. Okay, he's not saying that a human being can never die. I mean, the whole analogy here is he's giving comfort to his disciples who will be martyred and persecuted. The point isn't that a sparrow can never die. The point isn't that a human being can't die. The point is not even one sparrow can die until God says, time's up. And when that level of the sovereignty of God, that revelation comes into your heart and you realize, oh yeah, I'm going to die someday, but I can't die until God says time's up, then courage up, anxiety and worry down because God is actively involved in his, in his uh, creation. Now, I know there's a cynic, and, and so we're, you know, and we're going to deal with a bunch of these questions now, because we have to look at, you know, how does this all work out? And there's probably a cynic in here right now, thinking to himself, okay, Chris, just this morning before I came to church, I saw my cat take a sparrow off the, off the bird feeder, and I watched that cat, that big old cat, you know, downing that sparrow. So, What does that mean here? God didn't do a good job taking care of that sparrow? Okay? So let's talk about that for a moment. And the the point here isn't cats and sparrows or anything like that. The point is, how does the sovereignty of God actually work? If we don't answer some of these questions, we can't actually grab onto this truth. Okay? Uh, What does that mean that your cat grabbed a sparrow? Certainly, like I said, some sparrows are going to die. Thankfully, some of them are going to die. They're going to take over. Okay? But what does it mean that when when a cat grabs a sparrow, does that mean God wasn't paying attention? Does that mean... God wasn't in control. So let's, let's examine the sovereignty uh, with a couple more things here. And there's two things I want to tell you. Um, first of all, uh, God created the cats too, didn't he? Okay? He created the cats too. He's sovereign over the cats. Now the moment God made cats, uh, I mean, he, so here, this will be hard for some of you to believe. God actually likes cats. Okay? <laughs> some of you, that's very hard to believe. Okay? Uh, he made them. Okay? He made them, they're perfect killing machines and sharp teeth and the way they think and where their eyes are, they're perfect killing machines. And God made them and that's part of his good creation and he wanted things that way. And he made this whole balance of creatures on the earth and he wanted them to balance themselves out as he would work in the earth. So he made all the different slots, predators and prey and sparrows fit in there somewhere and cats fit in there somewhere and wolves and lions and all predators and prey and he's balanced the whole thing out, okay? So, I mean, the moment he made cats... Jesus isn't, God, isn't saying, you know, God's only responsible for the sparrows and he's protecting them against the cats. When he made cats, he also became responsible for looking out. He all, the, whole, the whole chain, right? The whole chain has to work. So it's not bad. Your cat's not being bad when he kills a sparrow and God's not, you know, doing a bad job when he lets a cat kill a sparrow. In fact, if we read in the scripture, uh, God has to feed, God, all animals look to God for their food, sparrows and predators, Okay, and I'll show you this again. This is all over Scripture. And again, the implications here are much bigger than just uh, animals. But we're just looking at how does the sovereignty of God work itself out. The sovereignty of God does not work itself out in all kind of like little soft, gentle, nice ways. He is sovereign in life and he is sovereign in death. And he decides sometimes to pray, yes, I'm, you're going to die. It's your time's up because I'm going to feed this predator. And uh, we see in Psalm 104, it says this, The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. Look at that. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. So God is sovereign. All animal life and plant life is dependent on God. And he says, now it's your time to go, it's your time to live. He's sovereign in all, the dying and the living. And a couple more passages here, Psalm 145, 15 to 16. The eyes of all look to you, and speaking of God, and you give them their food in due season, you open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing, no exceptions. All life dependent on God for existence. He, speaking of God, gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. Psalm 147, verse 9. So God is sovereign over the universe. He holds the universe together, the laws of nature, gravity. And then on a a details level... His creatures, and we're not even talking about human beings yet, the the creatures, the animals and the plants, dependent on God, and he's looking after them, and he's making decisions of life and death uh, uh, about them all the time. That's his sovereignty. He's very involved in creation. Very, very involved. Now, now we have to start talking, though, about human responsibility and God's sovereignty, okay? Because where do these two things meet? Because right away, then, the question uh, will be, you know, someone will be sitting there thinking, okay, Chris, are you saying that I can save a lot of money now on pet food for my dogs and my cats because if I just don't feed them, well, God's going to take care of them, right? Or maybe you're sitting here today and you're an enterprising uh, farmer, And you're thinking to yourself, wow, Chris, this is an incredible truth. You've just lowered my overhead. I'm not going to buy any more feed for my hogs or my chickens or my whatever kind of animals people farm these days, sheep and, and cattle. And you say, I don't have to buy feed for them anymore. Because Chris said in the Bible, it's clear verse after verse after verse that they depend on God for their food. So I don't have to feed them. And obviously we know that's somehow not right somewhere in here human responsibility comes in so somehow somehow Jesus is right when he says that God feeds the sparrows but somehow I still have to buy food for my dog or a feed for my cows or whatever there's human responsibility and God's sovereignty coming together here and again this is this is so much bigger than just animals but I want to we have to we have to look at this Animals is our excuse to talk about this, but it applies to all areas of life. How does, how does human responsibility and God's sovereignty, how can Jesus be literally saying something over here and us know that we have responsibility over here? How can both of these things be true? And, uh, and of course, I, I, I think we need to have humility about this discussion. I, I, I don't think here on earth anybody can fully, 100% define where God's sovereignty and human responsibility, where they meet Exactly. But we can look in Scripture and we can begin to define this thing and give it an outline so that we can have a better understanding of how human responsibility and God's sovereignty come together. In order to do that, we've got to go back to Genesis chapter 1 and God's mandate for human beings. Who did He make us to be on the earth and what is the role He has given us? Okay? So go back to Genesis chapter 1 and God's mandate to human beings right at the beginning and then we're going to look at this thing of human responsibility and God's sovereignty. Okay, so in the beginning, I'll just read the whole passage and then we'll come back and pick at some things here. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth." So, um, a couple of things. Actually, I want to say a bunch of things before I even get started. I want to say something about this passage that pastors and people often get wrong. They take that those dominion statements and they say they think or preach or teach or think that God gave the earth to human beings; that human beings own the earth, and that's not what the passage is saying. It's very important we get this, and I've, I showed you this earlier in this message series. God owns everything. He owns all the land. He owns every one of us here. Every one of us is owned by God. He can do whatever He wants at any moment, at any time. He can give a piece of land to someone else, to another nation, whatever it is. It's very important that we realize God did not give the earth to human beings to own. Okay? He, but He did give us dominion. He put us in authority. He gave us some kind of authority and responsibility that, uh, that we are in charge of things like a servant in a master's house to take care of his stuff, okay? So that's very important to realize, okay? So that's the dominion side of things. We don't own this stuff. We don't own ourselves. God does. But now I want to talk about the image of God. It's really important that we understand this thing of the image of God because that's a huge part of this passage. Let us make man in our image, Okay? And of course, you know, anybody who's been a Christian for any amount of time, we all know that, uh, we, that we are made in the image of God. But what does that really mean? What does it mean that we human beings are made in the image of God? Uh, I bet if I took 10 of you out right now and put you on stage and give you a piece of paper and ask you, uh, what is the image of God? I bet you I would get 10 different answers. I bet you if I asked some of you on different days, what is the image of God, depending on the conversation and the context, I would get different answers. We all know we're made in the image of God, but nobody seems to know, what what does that mean? What is the image of God? What does it mean that a human being is made in the image of God? And there's many, many answers out there. There are tons and tons and tons of different answers. Here's some common ones, um, you know, that that you'll hear out there. Uh, One thing you'll hear is, uh, it's our creativity, Right? It's our creativity. Um, We can enjoy music. We can create songs and stories and poems. And we can, pictures, and we can build things and build beautiful buildings and design things out of nothing. We can do that. We're creative. Animals can't do that. So that must be the image of God in us. That must be what makes us special. We have this creativity. Um, Another answer I've heard people give, another common answer is... Uh, what, what is the image of God in human beings? What makes human beings uh, unique and special and the image of God? And you'll hear stuff like, it's our desire for purpose and meaning in life. I mean, animals don't have that, right? An animal just wants to survive, but human beings, we're not ha- satisfied to just survive. If all we're doing is surviving, we're depressed. Because we're thinking about life after death, we're thinking about death, animals don't think about that, and we want meaning and purpose in life. And so a lot of people will say, that's the image of God in us. We want meaning and purpose in life. That's what makes us different. Or uh, another one you'll hear is love. It's love, right? God is love. We have the ability to love and and give love and relationships and all sorts of stuff. And uh, certainly more than any any animal, although some animals it seems like they do maybe give and receive a little bit of love. But a lot of people say this ability to love, to give love, to receive love, that's the image of God. And then there's many other answers too, whether it be intelligence or language or conscience or self-awareness. There's all kinds of things that people have said, that's the image of God, okay? And of course I get that all of these things certainly are attributes of God that, uh, that, you know, that are in human beings, so certainly there is some element of truth that these things do somehow reflect God. These are certainly, uh, you know, we can see a bit of what God is like by seeing them in humans, so there's no question about that, but it's actually dangerous, it is dangerous to define the image of God by capabilities. It is dangerous to define the image of God as uh, you know, creativity or intelligence, uh, self-awareness, all sorts sort of stuff. It's actually dangerous to define the image of God that way. And you say, dangerous? You must be, you're overstating things here. How can that be dangerous? I'll tell you why it's dangerous. It's dangerous because the moment you define the image of God by a set of capabilities... You automatically will leave a whole bunch of human beings out of it. The moment you define the, the image of God as a certain capability or a set of capabilities, you will automatically draw a line and a whole bunch of human beings will be left out of the image of God. For example, an unborn baby. An unborn baby. Does a baby at three or four weeks of development have any sort of creativity? Do they write music? Do they make paintings? Can they enjoy music at that at that stage? Uh, No. Does a baby at eight or nine weeks are they are they self-aware? Are they thinking about meaning and purpose in life? Are they giving and receiving love? The answer is no. The moment you define the image of God as, the image of God is a set of capabilities. You've just cut out babies in the womb and abortion advocates love that kind of stuff because that's their whole argument is that a baby in the womb isn't a person yet. And it's got to grow for a a, a long time. And now they're even advocating, some of them in medical journals, that you can even kill kids after they're born. Very true. Uh, February this year published in the Journal of Medical Ethics. Arguments for that from uh, in, you know, intelligent people. But I mean, when you take God out of the equation, that's where you're going to end up. But their whole thing is, it's not a person because it can't do the things a person should be able to do. It's not a human being. Well, it's not just babies in, in the unborn womb, the, uh, in the unborn womb, unborn babies in the womb. Um, but uh, the moment you define human beings as a set of capabilities, creativity, intelligence, language, self-awareness, um, what about severely handicapped people? Uh, what about a person in a coma? Did they lose the image of God? I mean, they had the image of God. They're unconscious, you know, or not even a coma. Let's say someone gets knocked on the head in a hockey game or something. They're lying unconscious. Did they lose the image of God for a couple of minutes? Because they don't have those capabilities then during that time, um, that this, it's very dangerous to take this. And we just always assume in the image of God. We just take it and we say, well, it's got to be these capabilities God has given us. And it must be more than that. Certainly, there are some element of truth in the fact that God has taken some of his attributes and put it in humankind. And as a whole, they kind of reflect. Well, we can see some of God in us. But it must be much more than that. There has to be something about the image of God that is intrinsic to just being a human being. And every human being has it regardless of capacity. See, if, if the image of God is a capability, then someone who has more of that capability is more in the image of God and someone who has less is less in the image of God. Then if, if, you know, if, the, if the image of God is creativity, then a more creative person is more in the image of God than a less creative person, right? Clearly, there can't be a continuum. Everybody is in the image of God. There's not more or less in the image of God, regardless of capacity. Very important, okay? So what is than the image of God. Well, let's go back to Genesis 1 up there. And uh, then God said, I just want to help uh, focus in on it there. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Uh, the first thing you have to understand here is that in both the Hebrew and English, the word in uh, has, a very, uh, has many different senses or many different ways you can look at it, facets to its meaning, okay? And uh, this is true in both Hebrew and English. By the way, the thing you need to know, here's a, here's a little Hebrew lesson for you. The Hebrew language and the English language, the English language has, I think, almost a thousand times more words in the vocabulary than the Hebrew language, okay? And this is something you have to know, especially when you look at Old Testament Hebrew, it has very, very few words compared to English. And what this means is that in Hebrew, any word in Hebrew will have to do lots of extra duty. So in English, we'll have a different word for this, and a different word for this, and a different word for this, and a different word for this. In Hebrew, you'll have one word that'll have to say seven or eight different things. Okay? And so that, that is what actually bring, it makes it a challenge for uh, interpreting the Old Testament sometimes. But uh, anyway, let us make man in our image. The word there in Hebrew and English, in, has uh, many different senses to it, facets to its meaning. Okay? And so let me just illustrate that in the English. Um, for example, if I say that I work in a barn, I'm tell- the word in is telling you where. It's telling you a place. I work in a building called a barn. But if I say I work in the farming industry, I just use the same word in, but it's not telling you where. It's not telling you a place anymore. It's telling you my role. It's telling you what I do. If I say that I work in the farming industry, I'm not telling you which building I work in. I'm not telling you where I work. I'm telling you either that I work as a farmer or I work as you know, a feed manager, female manager, or something like that, I'm telling you that I work as something, I'm telling you something about my role, not about where I work, okay? And I mean, there's many other examples I could use. If I tell you I work in a school, then you know where I work. I work in a school building. But if I tell you I work in education, I'm telling you about my role, I'm telling you about my function, my status, I work as a teacher or I work as a principal. Stuff like that, okay? Now, the same is true, that is is the same is true for the Hebrew word as well, and so we can read this passage in a little bit of, of a different facet, a different way, and it's linguistically legitimate to do that. We can read this, pas- this passage as, let us make man as our image, okay? It's legitimate to do that. Now, the moment you do this, actually this verse fits in with the context of the rest of the passage much better, and I'll show you in just a moment. But the moment you do this now, the emphasis is not, God put some capabilities or characteristics in me, and that's what he was doing. The emphasis here becomes now, My function, my status as a human being. God made me as his image. In other words, I'm supposed to be his imager here on the earth. He wanted images, managers, representatives of himself on the earth in his place. And so he made us as his image. We are to work. It's a function. It's a status. And it's just simply, it has nothing to do with your capacity. God said, let us make man as our image. Let us make man as our imagers, our representatives on the earth. And so now, regardless if I have lots of capacity or low capacity, I'm just, by definition, I'm an imager of God. It's a status. It's a role that I play. So if I'm good in music, then I am supposed to represent God in the world of creativity and music. If I'm a farmer, my job on the earth is to represent God in stewarding his land and the animals and all sorts of stuff. I'm supposed to represent him in that area. And that goes right on to anyone of any capacity from the severely handicapped or disabled to healthy, smart. We can't always understand how someone functions that way. But by definition, just by being a human being, you are an imager. It's your status, it's your role. That's what you are on the earth. It doesn't have to do with your capabilities or your capacity. Capac- capacity, you are, a, you are an imager. You are a representative of God. Now, the rest of this passage now makes more sense because what does the rest of the passage go on to say? It's talking about our jobs. I made you as an imager, you're my representative on the earth, you're my ambassadors, you're all sort of stuff, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So as my managers, this is what they will do. They are in charge in my place. God is still king over all of it, God still owns all of it, but as his servants, we are charged with taking care of his stuff. Let us make man as our imagers, our representatives here on the earth. Now, this brings us back to the animal question because we've seen a whole bunch of passages that say God feeds the animals and now we see a passage where we are God's representatives on the earth and we're supposed to take care of the animals. So which one is it? Do the animals look to God for food or do they look to human beings for food? And the answer is, uh, it's a bit of both. And so I'm going to show you a diagram now, a couple of diagrams. If you could put the uh, first one up there, is Jesus right or is Genesis 1 right? Well, let's let's look at this. Let's look at the sovereignty of God and responsibility of human beings, okay? First first thing you have to realize is that ultimately, again, God is sovereign over everything. He decides in the morning, the sun's going to come up again, rain's going to fall, crops are going to come up. If he doesn't make that decision, we're all dead and there is no stewardship, okay? If he doesn't make that decision, we have no animals to care for. We're all dead, Okay? So ultimately, it's all resting on his sovereignty. Once he makes that decision that, okay, the sun's going to come up again, the rain's going to fall, the crop's going to come up again. Once he makes that decision, now we have something to care for. And now our stewardship comes in that we are God's representatives, his imagers on the earth in whatever capacity we are. And now we are supposed to care for some of the animals and land and stuff that he's given us to steward. So if you could, yeah, put the next one up there. That's great. So you can see that as his servants... We've got to take care of some of his stuff. Now, if you don't take care of your pets or your farm animals, they will die of neglect. There's no question about it. And God didn't want them to die of neglect, but he won't won't force you to do what you're supposed to do. But because he's in charge and it's his stuff, he's sovereign, he'll hold you accountable. Someday you'll stand in front of him and he'll say, you wicked servant, why did you not take care of my stuff that I gave you to take care of? So there's no question that you have a responsibility. If you don't feed those animals that are directly in your care, they will die of neglect. But um, uh, what about the sparrows and stuff? Well, you'll notice that there, I got solid lines going down to the pets and domestic animals. That's because some animals are directly in the care of human beings. There's no question. You let them starve, they'll starve. God will hold you accountable, but you let them starve. Okay. But we know that there's a whole host of creatures in the earth that we don't feed. We don't go out and feed the deer. Okay, Uh, we don't feed the rabbits. Uh, I've got a couple in my yard that fed on one of my trees this year, and I'd like to kill them. But uh, (laughs) we don't feed the sparrows. We don't feed. There's there's billions of creatures and bugs and all kinds of stuff that we don't feed. We if we don't feed our pets and our farm animals, they'll die. So there is some. We have we have authority over some of these animals directly. They come to us for their food on behalf of God. But then there's a whole host of other creatures in the world, the wide, wild animals and stuff. We, we, can, we have a, an effect on them according to other choices we make and things that we do on the earth, but, we don't, but they're not directly dependent on us. Those animals are still directly dependent on God. So if you want to just put up that next one. And so you can see how Jesus is exactly right. He says the sparrows and the lions and the wild animals are dependent on God directly for their food and for their life. Our pets and our domestic animals are dependent on God, but, they're, but they come to us on God's behalf. So you can see, God is sovereign. And remember, God's sovereign over the whole thing because he decides we're all going to live in the first place because he makes the sun come up or whatever. But then within that, we have some responsibilities in there where we have to take responsibility and do what we're supposed to do. And again, this is so much bigger than animal and plant life. This, as we'll go through this series, this has to do with, you know, all elements of life and what God gives you to, and, and trusts to you, Okay. So what we're building here is a bit of a sovereignty sandwich, okay? The bottom level of the sovereignty sandwich is the sun comes up, the rain comes down. If God doesn't give us that, we're all dead. So that's first sovereign decision. All of our lives are dependent on it. On top of the so- that first level, we smear some, uh, some human responsibility. There are elements of his creation. We don't have power over the weather. We don't have power over the laws of gravity. But we do have responsibility over some of the animals and some of the creation that he's put in our care. Okay? But lest we get too proud on that level of human responsibility, I finished the message with this. There's one more level of God's sovereignty that we've got to sandwich us. On the, on the bottom half is the sun came up again this morning. That's his decision. Smear on a bit of responsibility. Then on the top, you have to remember that actually, then on, in addition to our human responsibility, God is still every moment, moment by moment, deciding which ones of us will live and which ones of us will die. Acts chapter 17, verse 24 to 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself, personally, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He decides the sun's going to come up, so on a big scale he keeps the whole universe alive. He smears in some human responsibility, but then he wants us to remember, on top of that, that on an individual life, not on an individual level, not only does he keep the whole universe up, but on an individual level, he's deciding moment by moment which one of us will keep breathing and which ones will not. And in his goodness, he owns it all. And he can call any one of us or any animal home at any time that he wants. He can call any of us home this moment. He does not have to answer why. He does not have to pay some legal fee. He just does whatever he pleases because he owns it all. And then at that moment, you have to stand and give account to God. How did you steward His stuff in the time that He gave you. So I'll just finish with this last part of the diagram. Ultimately, we see again the sovereignty of God beneath us holding us up, a little bit of responsibility, and then the sovereignty of God sandwiching us on on top. He is in control and in charge. Let's give Him glory. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus. First of all, again, I worship you that you are good. Every one of us here right now, we draw our breath, we breathe out, we breathe in, Father, this is because of a decision you are making right now. And we thank you for life. We thank you for giving us yet another opportunity to build up reward for heaven. We thank you for giving us another opportunity to repent. Lord Jesus, moment by moment, you are involved in our lives. We see you at work all around us. All of your creatures depend on you for life and breath and everything. Father, I pray that this truth would begin to saturate into our souls that it will grip us, that it will change the way we pray, that it will change the worldliness with which we approach our lives, and that we will give you glory and gratitude according to what you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.